millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Who writes the story? And whose history is told? What we think we know. Black Wall Street. Myth or reality? This white mob invades Greenwood, looting and burning. African Americans are getting rounded up and essentially arrested. The local National Guard units who, in fact, during the massacre, turned their own machine guns on black citizens. I'm Clark Ushikin, and in Reclaimed and Rewritten, I'll be exploring the myths and the realities of Tulsa and the 1921 race riots that decimated the thriving black community known as Deep Greenwood. To take a people's church and burn it to the ground. All of those churches were burned. That first week after the massacre, we have evidence that the white chief of police sent his officers to the different white photography studios in town to confiscate any photographs of the destruction. The aim of Reclaimed and Rewritten is to find and tell the whole truth of our complicated histories, leaving no stone unturned. Some truths will be difficult to hear and others will bring great pride and joy. The system has developed quickly that no African-American is allowed out of these internment centers. In this episode of Reclaimed and Rewritten, we'll be looking deeper into the reaction of the white community, media, and law enforcement to Dick Rowland's case and the aftermath and rebuilding efforts of the Deep Greenwood community after the ensuing riots. With me is journalist and author Scott Ellsworth to unravel the events of the aftermath of the Tulsa Race Massacre. So I really want to touch on the some of the events of the bombing and then the aftermath. So my question to you is, what are your thoughts on some of the partial narratives told around the Tulsa massacre where it's almost like people assume that the residents of Deep Greenwood didn't fight back. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's no question whatsoever that people in Greenwood fought back and fought very hard. Any interested readers can go online and if they search for Tulsa Race Riot Commission report from 2001, they can find that online. On the back, there is a, there's a series of about 10 maps that gives an almost an hour-by-hour description of the destruction of Greenwood. And what you're going to see is just a number of very hot firefights where African Americans are desperately trying to protect their homes and churches and businesses that went on throughout the day. But again, it's important to remember that African Americans were outnumbered nine to one you know, on any day in Tulsa. But there was certainly a fight back. So if they fought back and fought back really hard, how can we call it a massacre? When I wrote my first book on the massacre, I was trying to figure out what to call it. So I obviously I knew the new race riot. The term race war had been applied. Years later, I called it, you know, like an American 
Kristallnacht, you know, the attack against the Jews in Germany, so pogrom, all these things. But the word massacred popped up, and I went to W.D. Williams and to other survivors, all of whom were adults. You know, I said, what about the term race massacre? And he said, hell no. You know, we got as many of them as they got of us. So the words race massacre also carry connotations, too, that it was this complete slaughter that you know, we just don't know. I mean, the reality is this, is to this day, we simply don't know how many people died in the Tulsa Race Massacre, nor do we know what the ratio was of black to white deaths. I think reasonable estimates go from somewhere in the 70s to as high as 300. I discovered harrowing accounts of the bombing. Buck Colbert Franklin, a Tulsa attorney, recalls what he describes as turpentine balls falling from the sky. In his words, I could see planes circling in midair. A 10-page manuscript written by Buck was discovered in 2015. In it, he writes about the planes. They grew in number and hummed, darted and dipped low. I could hear something like hail falling upon the top of my office building. The sidewalks were literally covered with burning turpentine balls. I knew all too well where they came from, and I knew all too well why every burning building first caught fire from the top. According to the 2001 Commission report, Black newspapers were full of stories of turpentine or nitroglycerin bombs being dropped and men shooting from planes. In episode one, we learned that there were more than a dozen churches in Deep Greenwood. I know that the Christian church has long been a hub of safety and resistance for Black Americans. Dr. Geraldine Uhlenberg, author of A Lynch Black Wall Street, talks about the Black churches in Deep Greenwood and how they fared during the riots. Let me begin with how African Americans have used faith and religion. It has been the entire substance of resistance against this abuse but it has also been a place of solace where Blacks could come together and sing and praise and worship and be renewed. They danced all night after picking cotton in order to be able to have another day. They knew that embracing, loving, supporting one another was going to be their survival. And the undergirding of that were the churches. So those churches allowed our people to be able to have the connection, to build the faith, and to use faith as this form of resistance to overcome what they had to contend with on a daily basis. So to take a people's church and burn it to the ground, all of those churches were burned. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Vernon AME Church, my home church, had only built the first level or what they call the basement level. That was burned to the ground. There was another historical church called Mount Zion. It is two streets over. They had just completed their beautiful sanctuary and had been operating with worship for 30 days. Thousands of dollars. They had raised the money and had the loan, and they were able to open up this beautiful new church. You can imagine in this time frame, 1921, what that took for African-American people who were making pennies by the hour to build a beautiful church like this. But when the massacre occurred, the church was burned to the ground. 
one of the most famous pictures that you see on the internet, if you just Google uh, Black Wall Street, you'll always see one church with this smoke that's just blowing out of the top. That's Mount Zion. Of course, many years later, they did rebuild. To show you the significance, the dedication of African-American people, they spent many years paying off a church that no longer existed and then finally rebuilt another one. So they kept their commitment. When I think about a lynching, it was a community, not a person, but the concept was still the same. They didn't want African-American people to have this kind of success as they invaded each home, as they vandalized, as they took their fine china and furniture out of the home and then burned it. There were statements made, they should not live like this. They have things better than we do. The other underlying story is that the white people really wanted the land. They no longer wanted African-Americans to be there. They had been warned with notes on their homes and things. You must leave by such and such a time. As you mentioned, religion and religious spaces were and are still important for Black people to gather and make sense of the often hostile world around them. In the last episode, you spoke about the presence of the KKK, who are known to use religious symbology when committing acts of violence. Um, I believe one of said famous examples includes burning crosses. I'm very interested in the religious aspects of the KKK and how that juxtaposes with Black religiosity. Can you speak on this? This idea of religion being extremely interwoven into the practice of violence, murder, lynching, and death is inescapable. And we need to understand that when we talk about the KKK, we are talking about people who are filled with hatred or who claim white nationalism. This is our country. We're going to take it back. Or as Trump would say, we're going to make it great again. Another thing I think that is important to clarify is that some may think that the Klan is just men. But there were also women who made up the Ku Klux Klan. There were also children. So being indoctrinated at a very young age that this violence against African-Americans is somehow this acceptable way of being and being tied to some form of religion, Christianity, that we see expressed in the burning of the crosses in the yards of even someone like Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King burning those crosses during the civil rights movement. And we also see prayers and that type of thing happening with the Klan. When you look, especially in like history books in the States, you'll see a lot of symbolism where the KKK sex will start burning crosses or burn crosses into lawns. Like they take a lot of this imagery and they flip it or they're perverted or whatever. They use it to their purpose to inspire the violence or carry out the violence. So I guess if I were to ask you to connect the dots between the KKK, their simultaneous worship, because they claim to be, you know, Christian group, right? Their simultaneous worship and perversion of Christianity and the religious allegory of whiteness aspiring to be God. How would you make those connections? That's a very simple answer, Clarkisha. You would have the United States. This idea of religion 
this idea of white supremacy, this idea of power, of sovereignty, of hegemony, this dominance of one culture over another, one race over another, justified and supported by religious ideology or Christianity, if you'd like to call it that, is what has brought us to where we are. And unfortunately, you see that nothing has changed. I ask, has the value of Black life been changed? Are we seen as equal to the white race in this United States? Are we treated that way when we apply for jobs, when we apply to get into various universities, when people are hired on the jobs? Are African-Americans paid equal? Are women paid equal? So they do not and did not want to relinquish opportunity advancement to anyone and certainly not to African-American people. We see that historically and we see that today. So this is the unfortunate way in which Klan or the KKK or any other race hate group operates at the devastation and destruction of others. I spoke with Scott Ellsworth about why there's so little info on the Tulsa massacre. Part of that has to do with the fact that both black newspapers were destroyed. There was no reporting in them. The white newspapers had a certain uh, goals in mind in terms of reporting about this. This is not an era where people had ID. Nobody had driver's licenses. There aren't photo IDs, things like that. So that's work I've been involved with for a long time, and there's still work we're still doing in terms of trying to find these mass graves. But no, Black Tolson's fought back, and they fought back with everything they had. So on to the aftermath. Can you speak to the process of rebuilding, like the access to resources, but also kind of the forces that were working against Black Tolson's as they tried to put their lives back together, essentially. So after the massacre happens, Greenwood is destroyed. You know, more than 1,000 African-American homes and businesses were looted and burned to the ground. 35 square blocks are just a wasteland of rubble, of charred trees, uh, you know, melted bed frames. I mean, it's gone. What was the media response to the devastation? What were the newspapers saying? The massacre was national news. It was international news. It was front page of the New York Times. It made the Times of London. It made the Times of India. But what happened was that the white authorities, Tulsa's white city fathers, realized that they had a PR problem. Martial law had been declared. He'd had this great destruction. Train service was interrupted. So they tell the world that white Tulsans are sorry about, ashamed of what happened, and that the good white people will rebuild the black community. And they told that to the world, and then the news cycle moved on, you know. There was a flood in Colorado, or, you know, whatever happens, and Tulsa falls off the pages of newspapers nationwide. So, essentially, the world moves on to the next big thing, which... It's similar to today when we think about social media and the response to Black Lives Matter, the Haitian earthquake, and more. 
Like, people just throw up a black square and keep it moving. With no understanding of the historic, political, and economic factors that created these inequities to begin with. The American Red Cross did come. This was the first, quote, man-made disaster the American Red Cross ever did work with, and they there to be credited with providing tents and lumber and all that. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Scott is part of a team seeking to locate the mass graves of those killed during the riots in Deep Greenwood. He spoke with me about the aftermath of the riots. So the riots have happened. Deep Greenwood has been decimated. What's happening next? What actually happened is that the city government, the white city government, tried to steal the land where the Greenwood Commercial District was by passing a very restrictive fire ordinance. Can you elaborate on these fire ordinances for our international audiences? After the riot, when the white city fathers decide oh, we would like to build a new uh, railway terminal where the African-American commercial district has been. It was known as Deep Greenwood. And so to do so, what they did is they passed a very restrictive fire ordinance that said that any building, any structure built in this area had to be so many stories high. It had to be, you know, concrete, reinforced, steel beam construction and whatnot. And while some of the buildings in Deep Greenwood were that way, others were not, you know, that much. This was also created this huge financial barrier that um, even though the Williams family and some others were able to rebuild their buildings, others were going to take, going to have to start out on a smaller scale before they could build to their earlier glory. So it was a way to keep people from rebuilding. And it was designed to steal the land so they could build a terminal there. Wow. How did the Deep Greenwood community respond to this? African-American lawyers, including the father of the renowned historian John O. Franklin, fight this in court with some white lawyers as well, too. But they tell everyday citizens, just rebuild anyway. Don't listen. Ignore this ordinance. You know, find anything you can. Orange crates, whatever. Rebuild, rebuild, rebuild. And they eventually defeat the fire ordinance in the Supreme Court of the state of Oklahoma. So there's not going to be a legal impediment to rebuilding, but Black people have to figure out how to do this. It sounds like rebuilding Deep Greenwood was a very, very slow process. The reality is that the rebuilding of Greenwood, 
Parts of it happened fairly quickly. Other parts took a long, long time. By 1922, remember the Williams family who had the, you know, the Dreamland Theater and all that. And less than a year and a half later, they had rebuilt an exact replica of their three-story brick Williams building. It was back up again. And again, there was so much money in Tulsa flowing in. And also, there wasn't a bank in Greenwood prior to the massacre. So the really well-to-do black families, they kept their money in the white banks downtown, and they had access to it. So the community does rebuild. Old-timers told me that in the 1940s and 1950s, it was even greater than before. There was a black-owned bus line. Uh, There was African-American families, uh, at least one family owned an airplane. You know, so this does rebuild. In your book, Death in a Promised Land, you recall some of the really horrid things they did, like assigning, you know, green cards to these residents to kind of track their movements. Um, I think there was an excerpt about the National Guard coming in and, like, holding, like, survivors in one space. Meanwhile, they're trying to figure out where their family went, if their family survived, so things of that nature. I wanted to see if you could elaborate on that for our audience. When the massacre ends, martial law has been declared in the city of Tulsa. It lasts for three days, something like that. National Guard soldiers who are white, but they're from out of town, they've come from Oklahoma City, have come in and they are controlling the streets. Those guardsmen, incidentally, were were praised by most African-Americans in Tulsa as being fair, unlike the local National Guard units who, in fact, during the massacre, turned their own machine guns on black citizens and really became a part of, of it. But what happened is is that as this white mob invades Greenwood, looting and burning, African-Americans are getting rounded up and essentially arrested, white police officers by local white National Guardsmen, by rioters themselves, and they're taken to these so-called internment centers that have been hastily set up in town at the baseball park, at the fairgrounds, at the municipal auditorium. And then a system is developed quickly that no African-American is allowed out of these internment centers until they have a white person to come and vouch for them. How long were they kept in these internment camps? For most Black adults, the vast majority who did work in these jobs in the white community, that was possible. But for these, you know, couple of hundred African-American men and women entrepreneurs that just served a Black clientele, that was harder to do. So most people got out in a few days, but some lingered for, you know, well over a week and a half. What's funny to me is that the United States doesn't even learn from this particular instance because they go on to do it again with Japanese Americans during World War II and especially post the Pearl Harbor bombing. The paranoia that was flying around during that time and like the questions across the country about whether Japanese Americans were truly loyal to the United States during this time, it just turned into this frenzy um, of trying to control and contain them and keep an eye on them. Is there a way to calculate what Deep Greenwood would be worth today if the riots had not happened? The loss was, in some ways, never recoverable. National Geographic magazine in June did a study 
on what the generational wealth loss was in Tulsa. And they determined, and again, this is a community of 10,000 people in 1921, that had the massacre not happened in Greenwood today, there would be an additional $600 million worth of generational wealth. I mean, that's decades of house down payments, of college tuition, of seed money for new businesses, of elder care, of child care, of everything. And uh, Greenwood today, uh, while it's, you know, a variety of people live there of, of different economic status, in, in general, there is still a great deal of poverty there that is that you can tie directly to the massacre. The average lifespan of citizens in North Tulsa is 10 years less than citizens in the white South Side. You know, and all these social indicators, infant mortality and whatnot, the blow that the community has taken, it is, it's not gone. William Faulkner famously said, the past isn't dead, it's not even past. And that's certainly the case in Tulsa today. Were there any other factors or legislation that hindered the rebuilding efforts for Deep Greenwood? Of course, this is the age of Jim Crow. You know, everything is segregated. Uh, There's laws on residential segregation in Oklahoma, as there was in much of the country. Blacks and whites couldn't live in the same building or the same block. But there was another type of control and that was done by the white authorities and those in power in town, which was not simply to control the story of the massacre, but to bury it. So even in that first week after the massacre, we have evidence that the white chief of police sent his officers to the different white photography studios in town to confiscate any photographs of the destruction, any photographs of the massacre or dead victims of the massacre and whatnot. And then something else happened as well, too. A couple of things. First, there was a, a grand jury, all white, was impaneled. They interviewed people, and of course, in their report, this is 1921 uh, America, they blame black people for the massacre, said that they brought it on themselves. Uh, no white person ever goes, spends a, a day in jail or prison for any of the lootings, murders, or destructions of the massacre. But what happens, too, is that this curtain of silence descends upon the massacre in Tulsa. So Tulsa's two primary daily white newspapers, the Tribune and the World, for decades, for nearly 50 years, they refused to print anything about what they would have called the race riot or the massacre during those days. Official records of National Guard reports disappear from archives and repositories. They're destroyed. Other things are just very, very difficult to find to the point that even within 25 years after the massacre, you have a whole generation of white Tulsans who've never heard about it. You know, their parents won't talk about it. There's nothing they can find out, read about it in print. It's as if it never happened. It is truly incredible to me how history repeats itself. But not even just that, like how history can also remix itself or hit the reshuffle button and change a couple of things around, but preserve the baseline of what happened. Looking around now, like 100 years later, and seeing how police officers in the United States and across the pond in the UK are rarely prosecuted for their crimes against Black citizens, it feels like very little is changing. 
I asked Scott how the Black newspapers in Tulsa dealt with the story at the time. The irony is that the massacre was also not discussed publicly in Greenwood either. So the Oklahoma Eagle, which for decades has been the flagship newspaper of Tulsa's Black community, they didn't publish the first articles about the massacre until the late 1960s. And it was a taboo to bring it up. And there's different reasons, but I think the key reason is to remember that for massacre survivors, we need to think of them like we think of Holocaust survivors. And also, you know, combat veterans and whatnot, who do not, number one, want to relive the trauma that they went through and uh, to bring up those memories. But also you had generations of Black parents and grandparents who did not want to burden their children and grandchildren with the horrors that they had experienced and wanted to look ahead for the future. So I'm 67 years old. I know descendants of survivors, African-American in Tulsa, who are my age, even though their grandparents had lost their home and businesses, they didn't learn about this event until the 1990s, 1980s, 1990s. So there were others who kept the story alive, like W.D. Williams and others, but it was something that wasn't talked about for a long time. And in fact, researchers, uh, you know, were threatened with their lives and their livelihoods as recently as the 1970s for, you know, looking into the story. So, Scott, why do you think it was so easy to bury such a huge story? A story that actually gained international coverage and headlines for so long, too. One thing that helped to keep the story of the Tulsa Race Massacre buried for years and years is the fact that, um, you know, Oklahoma is what uh, condescending people would call today flyover country. It's not on the East Coast, on the West Coast, on these big media centers, these important financial centers. It's in the middle of the country. Oklahoma is the reddest of the red states. It's an extremely conservative state politically. I remember in the 1970s, people would say, I didn't even know there were black people in Oklahoma. You know, people can be provincial anywhere. You can be very provincial, narrow-minded, living on the upper you know, west side of Manhattan as you can be in some dinky town in Idaho. I mean, the reality is that African-Americans are a part of the histories of every single state in the United States. They are a vital presence in all of American history. And, you know, their communities are are nationwide, obviously more in certain places than others. So that's been part of it. It's been a geographic isolation that's also played into keeping this this story buried for so long. This is a six-part limited series, and we've reached the halfway point. We'll be taking a break for the holidays. Episode 4 will be dropping on Tuesday, January the 11th. In the next episode, I'll also be connecting the dots globally to find out how the themes of Deep Greenwood have played out across the Atlantic and the UK and how local governments have used various laws and regulations to manipulate and control Black populations. I'll be talking with British journalist Paula Akpin about moments in UK history that mirror the events that occurred in Deep Greenwood. In 1824, there was an act called like the Vagrancy Act, which one of the clauses said that people could be arrested on suspicion of doing some sort of criminal activity. 
these laws were in place and enforceable from 1824 until 1981. They are foundational for a lot of the legislation that I would say that we have today that is quite anti-black. There was the black van that black people knew to like look out for or be scared for because you could just be walking down the street by yourself and then this black van pulls up next to you, half a dozen police officers leap out of the back, attack you, beat you up. No arrests, no charges, nothing. During the police raids on Cynthia Jarrett's home in Tottenham on the 5th of October 1985, she collapsed, had a massive heart attack and died. Cynthia's death took place a week after Cherry Gross was shot in Brixton and paralysed, also during a police search. The next day there were protests outside of the Tottenham police station where tensions reached an all-time high. There were police officers using batons and assaulting protesters while protesters were hurling bricks and, you know, petrol bombs, whatever they could get their hands on. And later that evening, a police officer was actually killed during the conflict. Many of these districts, of course, were destroyed after World War II through redlining, through urban renewal or urban removal, through freeway construction, and also just through desegregation. What happened is we've had the destruction of these African-American commercial districts, not complete, but very serious decimation of them going on for the last 50 years. We're putting together an extra special episode where we want to hear from you. What are your thoughts on the story so far? Was there anything that surprised you? What does the story mean for Black communities globally? Send us a voice note or video via email to podcast at galdem.com. That is G-A-L-D-E-M.com. And we'll not only feature your contribution, but we will discuss them in a future episode. Reclaimed and Rewritten is available wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can follow Galdem on all social media platforms at Galdemzine. G-A-L-D-E-M-Z-I-N-E. Thanks for listening. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.